Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, episode 14. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, helping you turn ideas into successful products step-by-step with your host, Philip Valitza. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast. In the last episode, we talked with Kelly Costello, the owner and founder of Puppy Cake. She created an all-natural cake mix product for dogs in November 2007, and it quickly became the number one selling cake mix for dogs in the U.S. She sells both direct and wholesale, and we talked a lot about lowering the barrier to entry to buy for both types of customers. She was super transparent about the nine years it took her to get to where she is today, and I know you'll be able to put some of her advice to practice right away. And now onto the show. So in today's episode, I'm joined by Mickey Swartzel. Along with her husband, she owns a small business based out of Ann Arbor, Michigan called New Eagle. The company specializes in creating custom control systems, the automation of tasks using electronics, mechanics, and software. So we really have a two-for-one deal today, right? We get to talk to a successful product founder and small business owner, and we also get to see the process that they use to develop their own custom products. So let's get started. Hi, Mickey. Thanks for coming on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So your product is a little bit unique. We don't usually have products as complicated as mm-hmm. this, but I think it's really interesting to have you on the show. You have a hardware and software solution that's custom created for your clients. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So we are control systems engineers, which for those of you like me who aren't engineers, let me give you a 30 second explanation of what a control system that you might interact with. And that's for those of you who have ABS brakes, analog brake system on your car, when you drive and it's rainy and wet outside, the sensors and actuators, which are the hardware within the brake system, works with what's called an electronic control module that has software on it. An engineer is programmed to sense and act a certain way to allow you to stop your car. If you drive in a sunny, warm day, it senses and acts differently according to the software that has been programmed on it. So we do that kind of control system most often to determine an efficiency for someone. We want to take fuel that is expensive and utilize less expensive fuel. So we've worked in the alternative fuels industry, taking gasoline vehicles and making them liquid propane, compressed natural gas, electric electric hybrids. So trying to use the technology and know-how that we have to make something both cleaner and efficient, and then for whomever is producing this, a cost savings in the long run. That makes sense. So can you talk a little bit about the how you got started. So back in 2008, you and your husband, Rich, decided to create this company. Uh, was it a consultancy at the time or did you already have a product that you were selling? Actually, we go back a little further than that. And I and a key to bring that up. So in 2000 to 2003, we had an engineering consulting company around control systems only. 
And in that time, we created a in-house tool called RapidHawk that allowed us to do that software programming more efficiently and more cost-effective than our competitors in the same space. That quickly became our secret sauce and the reason people came to us because we, we were literally cheaper, faster, better. That got the attention of Brunswick Corporation in 2003, who had a hardware supply chain from uh, electronic control units and they wanted to put that software on our on their hardware Mm -hmm. so they purchased us in 2003 and we worked for them for five years and then in 2008 we when the economy went down brunswick was looking to shore up their cash position and they laid us off (laughs) and they also sold that division to their biggest customer so we had an opportunity to restart our company basically but having so to answer your question, we we knew the consulting world, but we also knew the challenges of consulting. And we had seen the benefits of having hardware and software and consulting all together because we felt like we were a full solution to a customer. And we were also, we often say we're on the same side of the table. With a consulting company, oftentimes you're you're asking for money and they're trying to save money. So with offering a full solution of hardware and software and consulting, we get them where they want to go. So we had seen that model work, and that's what we wanted to do this time around. Kudos to recognizing that this was an opportunity. That would be a frightening time for anybody to say that, you know, your company was basically sold to another. How did the IP work with that? Was it sold along with the division and you basically had to start from scratch and create a new product? Absolutely. Wow. So that's a ton of work too, but at least now you had this deep understanding of the problem and so you're able to maybe do things differently the second time around. Oh, oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> we often say that we went through the school of hard knocks and learned and in fact it was very difficult to make the decision to restart a company because we knew how hard it was. It was it was not a decision we made lightly. Right. Yeah. But I guess the alternative was having a full-time job working for somebody else. (laughs) That maybe maybe was worse. (laughs) Well, not really worse. It was very different. And we had done it for five years and, but we had great bosses and had at Brunswick and they'd given us a lot of latitude knowing where we had come from. Sure. So we didn't think we could find that opportunity again. No, that makes sense. And so now it was a chance for you to rebuild it the way that you saw it it should be built. That's very interesting. So can you talk about that process where you had an idea and then you created a prototype or a concept? You do that in your day job now as well. So maybe you can give people a little bit of insight how to go take those you know three or four baby steps in the beginning. For us, it always goes back to the customer. We are a sales organization at heart and and not the we're going to push something on you sales organization, which is often what people think with that word, but a true what does the customer need and we're going to find out how to meet that need. So going back to our first company in 2000, that Rapid Hawk product was purchased in 2003 with our sale and Brunswick developed it to a point in 2008 And then the subsequent buyer bought it without valuing it. Mm -hmm. So we had an opportunity to say, this is a great product, but it, it's not been developed fully. And, and honestly, we went many times to the new buyer and said, our customers want this. This 
is what it needs, et cetera, et cetera. So 2012, we got serious about, we saw there were too many opportunities in new industries, primarily electric and hybrid vehicles. That was our, the industry that really started us the second time around. And we saw that the current hardware and software wasn't, we were putting square peg in a round hole. Right. So taking what we knew, that's key to any development. Don't go outside your your wheelhouse here. Taking what you know and what we knew, and and again, listening to the customer, looking at what the industry trends were, again, wanting to be that full service solution. So working with a myriad of vendors to not recreate the wheel, right? There's a there's value in knowing what you what you do well and value in saying we're going to just buy this. The buy make decision came into play over and over again with us. There's a lot of good tips there for people that might be starting out and they feel like they need to compete one-on-one with everything else that's on the market. I think that's an interesting point that you made because as an outsider looking in and I have experience with control systems in the subsea space with the remote operated vehicles and some of the equipment you would think that the automakers and some of these other product creators have started to solve these you know, electric control systems issues. Like what made you think that you knew more about it than they did? I have two answers to that question. One, I always think if there aren't any competitors in the space, you have a bad idea. Right. I agree with so that. Competitors, <laughs> Yeah. Competitors don't scare me. And number two, we absolutely solved a different problem. We don't serve GM, Ford, Chrysler because one, they're either doing the development and from ground up, or yeah, I should add Tesla to that, right? They're, they are literally recreating everything they're not buying. They are creating. So we knew that wasn't going to be our market. Our market has always been the lower volume production customers. So the, mm-hmm. the customer that wants to take a medium duty van and make 10 of them mm-hmm. a year, GM wants to create 100,000. We served such a different market. We knew that the those smaller volume companies didn't have the resources to make and they didn't have the resources to buy in the quantities that the current vendors were offering. They didn't need a pallet of something. They needed two and we could fill that. Great. So how did you identify those people? Like to me, that's just a sea of mid-sized businesses that do you just start from the yellow pages and look to see what, you know, who's selling electric vehicles and then knock door to door? And again, in my mind, the yellow pages is where you would start if you were outside your expertise. Sure. Again, driving back to our expertise, taking, a, you know, a 15-year career in and around control systems gave us a nice industry cross-section. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to that, talking to your customers. If you talk to your customers and find out what they're doing and what they know, they're your best referral sources. And and again, answering that question. So um, we were always in trade shows. We were always in trade journals. We were always online. We were always working to find out and learn and then meet the needs. That's really good advice. Otherwise, how can you advise your customers if you don't know more than they do? Exactly. And what we've also done because we our, our mantra is service with the sales oftentimes happens all the time. Actually, we, we get phone calls asking for advice from us about what we see in the in you know electronics and software and what they're coming to us as industry experts. And then two and three and four and 10 years later, they're calling us and saying, now I have a project. Mm. 
but they they took something free from us first and then we got the business so you can call it marketing you can call it whatever you want but it's providing value well so let's talk a little bit about the next stage in the process then you have an idea you create a concept prototype you develop this rapid prototyping tool to help you go to production faster what is the next step in the process to creating a product so in 2012, we knew we needed to accelerate this development to, to meet the market demands we were seeing quickly. And our, honestly, we're very adverse. We're not to external funding. We're not VC funded. We are minimally debt funded. So we really were challenged to accelerate our development without funds. Mm-hmm. We were very thankful that the state of Michigan had a loan that we could get matching funds with, with a couple of investors to do that, to to accelerate our growth. So the state of Michigan basically helped fund this. And we began to take the best of what we knew and again, ask questions and realize that rapid prototyping and was, you know, the software side of things needed to meet you know, 2012 and beyond standards. And also it needed to have new hardware on which to sit. So we began internal development on the software side. We added to our software team. We did a lot of internal meetings and development to figure out what we wanted. And and that's now become the Raptor platform. So it's far above what we started back in 2000 with. It's a, it's a platform of products, but at the same time, we were working with hardware vendors to find the best solutions on which to put the software. So, and that's an interesting point because now you're kind, your business is basically dependent on someone else's product. How were you able to make sure that you get consistent quality from some of the suppliers that you depend on, or maybe even take it a step further back? How did you do an evaluation to make sure that they were supplying you the right product especially in your industry now where you don't deal in commodities. You can't just pick up the phone and get the same exact product everywhere else. It's very tailored to your solution, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, honestly, looking back in hindsight, my quick answer is a lot of hard work, a lot of communication, a lot of prayer, a lot of, a lot of, I don't even know, you know, we, now we didn't choose people that are working out of the back of their car, right? We chose Parker Hannafin and and Robert Bosch. So two world-class organizations who, again, this is what they do. And we had long-term relationships with both of them. So basically. Based on that prior history, it wasn't just a roll of the dice. It was an educated decision. Correct. You've chosen your products now that you want to come to market with. I imagine there's a lot of pressures there between pricing do you find that a lot of your decisions were based on how it technically performs or did you have to kind of balance that with cost and what your customers were willing to pay? Absolutely. It was an open conversation then with some of your suppliers to say, hey, listen, this is kind of where we need to be at. Absolutely. So when we looked at, and, and Parker and Bosch were very different in how they approached these relationships. So with Parker, this they wanted our software they saw the, the benefit of what we were developing on a software platform. So they worked with us to provide the development, knowing that on the back end, we were going to, the pricing that we're going to pay for their, their products was going to be higher. Robert Bosch was the opposite. 
they were we needed to pay them, but on the end end result, we were going to get a, a cheaper product for the market. So knowing that there's a trade off, if you can put a lot of money up front, you're probably going to get your production item much cheaper. If if they're paying for it, you're you know it's just an inverse relationship. Sure, sure. And, and always knowing that what the market was going to drive. Again, we're on the same side of the table. We both want to win. We both want to get them to the market. So again, the good suppliers understand that and they want to work with you. Especially if they see that you're basically creating another avenue for them to sell their products through. So Exactly. So hopefully it makes them a little bit more amiable to, to striking a deal. Correct. So that's really interesting. So you've now you've moved on and you've chosen your products. Did you consider patenting anything during this process or do you have any patents? We do not. Software is difficult to patent. It is typically a trade secret and copyrighted. So we've done that. I guess someone would have to reverse engineer it in order to uh, duplicate it. And really, it would have to be a specific niche solution because you provide a really niche product. Correct. So it's probably not worth the the level of effort. (laughs) Well, and, and it's very difficult with software. So if a customer approaches you and says, hey, I've got this idea. You know, We have this piece of construction equipment that we want to help automate. Can you walk us through the process that you go through? Sure. There's, gosh, there's just so many ways to, <laughs> to go with this. At that juncture, we're trying to find out why, what their ultimate goal is. So again, are they trying to get to the market quickly? Are they trying to make a big difference in, its, in, in a current product's efficiency? So kind of a retrofit, are they a new company and they don't have a lot of money? I mean, so the, sorry, your illustration was, you know, left me wide open there, but, but let's assume their, their goal is, is to get to the market quickly. So that's right up our alley and we will work with them. So our company has design engineers and then hardware software, right? So typically we act as an augmentation to their own engineering team. Sometimes we are their engineering team, but we're working in tandem to to design the control system to achieve whatever outcome they want. Typically then a customer, that's in what we call the prototype stage. So they're trying to, for lack of a better way of saying it, they're doing a science project. So they're trying to see if the science project is going to work. Yes, their hypothesis is X, if they throw the software and hardware at it, will it work? Yes, it works. Then they often they go away from us at that point. And that can be that process can be a month or it can be two years, right? It just really depends on the scope. They go away from us and they get they need a customer. They need someone that's going to buy this or fund it or whatever and says, say, yes, I want more than one of these on the planet. They then come back to us and say, yes, we're funded. Yes, we we have an order for 10. And at that point, my engineers typically get back involved to make it ready for production. And then the hardware and software team, the distribution side gets involved because we have built in the software and specific hardware that we can sell in production uh, to them. It's a, it's a timeline business that we realize we can't speed up oftentimes. We're, we're at the customer's timing. So in a way, you're creating a roadmap for them or maybe even a top-down view of what their system would look like and asking them to do some validation of their market. Then maybe you proceed and create a functional prototype. Correct. And so do you have like little bits and pieces now that are more or less interchangeable where you can just kind of plug them in and just to test that it works? Or are you basically creating a new custom prototype from the ground up every time? Both. 
we have what we call software libraries. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we're able to use those because you're right. We're an eight-year-old company and we are well-known in certain industries. So people come to us because they know we can make a car or electric. We say electrify a vehicle. They know that. And we have some canned hardware or, excuse me, software that we can utilize. That's far more cost-effective for the customer than starting from scratch. But that's only the beginning. There's always customization involved. Sure, they've got custom sensors or ways that they want things to operate that you maybe you haven't necessarily done before. So you have to maybe source that hardware and make sure that it works well with your software. Correct. Yep. So you get to the point where you've created a functional prototype and then what's the next step? Do you validate that at all? Does the customer come out and see it run or do you fly out to the customer site and install it and drive it around an empty parking lot? Absolutely. It, sometimes it's in our garage, sometimes it's at their site, but absolutely we help or sometimes they've they've engaged us on a on a more limited scope, right? So the customer's validating it. But at some point, yes, this prototype has to do what it what the hypothesis is. Yes, it has to work. So that's a lot of fun. I've done a few factory acceptance tests before and you're literally doing the job that the product will have to do, but it's in a simulated environment because let's say in this case with construction equipment, maybe you won't be able to uh, go to a uh, demolition site. And so you're basically simulating that in a junkyard or something. Have you seen some products and maybe not with your direct experience, but have you seen some tests that maybe it tested okay, but then at the end of the day, maybe it didn't work the way that people expected, maybe because the test wasn't written in a way that it simulated things properly, or it maybe people had the, the wrong expectations going into the, the testing phase? You know, I... I know that we have customers that have not gotten out of the prototype stage for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It didn't work, like you said, as expected or as planned or as required. And so it, it sort of died in the prototype stage. Hmm. But I can't really speak to much more than that. Well, that's fair enough. So there's probably a lot of things that maybe you can't plan around. And it, sometimes it happens. Sometimes customers, they have their funding pulled before they could get all the way to the market stage. Absolutely. So let's assume everything tested okay. Maybe the next stage is to ramp up production or do you go through maybe doing a custom design specific for that customer so it's it's packaged a little bit better? Absolutely. We call that pre-production. So we're getting them absolutely ready for production at that point because sometimes you're scaling things down, you're expanding technology, whatever. It, things have changed from beginning to that point. Basically just making sure that you're using your resources effectively in terms of um, your, you know, like you said, you're scaling things down, maybe looking at packaging, uh, looking at the cost of some things. And at that point, the customer comes in with their funding. I imagine that they've already given you some upfront funds to get to where they are now. And then you start production for them. Do you collect all the pieces of the puzzle for them and then ship them out as one system? Well, we've done both. Okay. Um, there are companies that they do that better than we do, or the system is, the scope is, is such that it's just not our area of expertise. So we're literally shipping a small, you know, a couple ECUs to them or mm-hmm. sensors, injectors, etc. But yes, we have shipped and or installed entire retrofit kits. And I guess that just depends on whatever the client feels that they're comfortable with. Like if they want a bolt-on type solution where they just get it and they pull out the getting started guide (laughs) and they can just kind of bolt it up to their gear or if they're just looking for a piece of the puzzle for them to integrate into a much bigger system. Correct. 
And all of this goes back to listening to your customer and making sure that you're giving them what they're looking for. Right. How do you weigh that with maybe sometimes the customer isn't always right? Mm. That's a loaded question it because I, I, I'm an engineer too. And sometimes people will ask you a question and part of our job is to help educate the customer about the solution and why a particular direction is more viable than the other. Absolutely. This is where our company value of integrity comes in. We don't tell people what they want to hear oftentimes. We tell people the truth. And sometimes the truth is you have a really bad idea and that's not going to work. But if you want to pay us to prove that, we'll take your money. I mean, we're not, you know, we're in business, but we're going to tell you right now that it's not going to work and we're not going to spend your money forever. You know, we're, we're going to, we're going to make this a very short project. And then we're both going to sit down and look at the results because if that's what they need, then that's fine. We can't, you know, honestly, if we tell them no, most likely they're going to go somewhere else. But sure. we have had people that have said, no, 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 we, we're going to make this happen. And so, um, and you know, Oh, I can't say we've always been right, but customers have come to appreciate our honesty. And again, we get the, the phone calls asking oftentimes, hey, what do you think? Is this going to work? And that is fascinating and valuable knowledge that we're learning what some of the out-of-the-box industry drivers are thinking. There's no other way to get that information oftentimes. But those conversations where somebody has some crazy idea and maybe the crazy idea won't work, but it connects the dots to other things that will work. Sure. It gets you thinking. I mean, they have all this industry specific knowledge that maybe you don't, you know, you know, control systems really well, but they understand the construction industry better than you do. Correct. And so they'll come in and just bounce a bunch of ideas off the wall and hopefully you can come to some happy medium. That's interesting. So do you help at all after you've, you've shipped the product? Do you provide any customer support? We do. Typically, there, that could be twofold. One, it can be pretty formalized engineering contract, right? They want some consistent help. They know that Gen 1 of the system is going to do this, but they know Gen 2 already has changes. And so they need us involved, you know, to understand Gen 1, to make Gen 2, et cetera. But there can also be we shipped, you know, we ship a box to them or we ship a pallet of something to them. And the ECU doesn't boot. The They don't know which side of the harness to plug in. I mean, you know, very basic kinds of things. And so that support is much less. And those are obviously customers that are, you know, more established, larger. But we do both. Sure. Again, tailoring your solution to your customer. <laughs> right. Um, so once you ship the product and you've done your customer uh, service portion of it, do you ever kind of loop back around and say, okay, you know what, this is what we've learned from this process and how can we use that for the, like, let's say future products that we develop or is the way to integrate all the lessons that you've learned back into what you're doing in the future? We know that is so valuable and that that makes us a better company but I have to admit, we don't document as well as we like to document. I think that's an engineering law in general, writing it up. And we often say, if you can't write it, you, it's not, you can engineer something beautifully, but if you can't write about it and document it, it didn't, it's like it didn't exist. So it, that is, we've just literally a couple weeks ago had that conversation. We, we've, on the commercial side, everything I've discussed, there's a, there's a lot of paper that goes with making a customer successful. And we've done that very well, but 
we absolutely need to document both for the customer and internally better. And that's a goal that we have. And that's really hard. And I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but all the companies that I've worked for as an engineer, that's probably, that's the portion of the project that always runs lean because you're under a lot of pressure to kick out new product or as an engineer, you get pulled off to get put on another project or maybe you're not that detail oriented and you haven't taken the notes during the project as much. And so now you face this huge wall of text that you have to document and it's just a, a chore. And so it's really difficult to capture that and, and learn from each other. And as the organization grows, I've you know certainly been, I've worked from some really small companies that had maybe two or three other engineers and I've worked for some that had you know hundreds and it's hard either way because you don't know what the other person is doing. And then it's kind of hard to learn from each other. Um, and other than just having to be kind of forceful about it and create some tools that will kind of help you document and make it easier. Exactly. And I always say, and this is probably a poor stereotype, but people don't go into engineering because they love to write. Right. <laughs> no, for sure. And I mean, there's exceptions, but by and large. And so as a result, that's, that is, that's the weak link. We try to try to facilitate talking. I mean, it's as simple as that sounds because if nothing else, at least hearing what other people are doing through us through our weekly stand-up meetings, our weekly company meetings, hearing the other projects and opportunities that people are working on at least facilitates a little of that. Sure. Absolutely. You're, and you're creating a culture of, of learning and sharing. Right. Um, that's super valuable. I've, I've worked at places where people hoard their information. That's probably some of the worst places that mm-hmm. you can work at. So uh, actually, maybe you can talk a little bit about polling your customers after the sale to see how you get some of that feedback. Do you do any of that where you're following up with clients to say, did we meet your needs and what could we do to improve uh, the product in the future? We do it very informally. We have asked for case studies and asked for the opportunity to write things up from a marketing perspective or highlight in an e-news or use a video. Mm-hmm. But generally, we know that our best opportunity for increased sales is a happy customer for referrals or continued work. So we stay hopefully appropriately connected to them in an informal manner. Right. Because the cost of acquiring a new customer is much greater than it is to, I guess, keep your existing customer happy. Right. You mentioned really briefly that you do stand-up meetings. Can you talk a little bit about that? I've heard of that where you, uh, I guess you just conduct the meeting while everyone is standing and that hopefully makes it go more efficiently. Exactly. It's We're following the trends and sometimes they are beneficial and sometimes they're not, but we think this one is. As a small company, we don't like meetings for meeting's sake, but we see the value in accomplishing some tasks, assigning tasks, understanding what everyone's doing. So my engineering team, they break up into disciplines and have stand-up meetings, 15, 20 minutes to talk, tasking questions, needs, roadblocks, and then they're done. And then we have a weekly all-company meeting that is stationally focused, making sure they're hearing things from, you know, directly from me and department heads, etc. But then followed on is what we call a lunch, a technical lunch and learn. So Again, presenting the lessons learned from projects, product development, updates, 
teaching. So keeping our knowledge fresh um, and having those three different kinds of meetings makes each grouping much more efficient and focused. Sure. That way, at least people have a chance to be heard at some meeting and they feel like they maybe don't need a grandstand during another meeting. Correct. You've talked about now that you've got multiple size teams. At some point, you had a really small team. Can you talk a little bit about the process of hiring people and maybe what you feel that you look for as a owner? I'm very involved in the hiring by choice. It's a part of the job I, of my job that I really like. I like getting to know people. I learn a lot. I think, honestly, a natural curiosity and a desire to, to work with great people is the first thing. I'm not filling slots. I'm, I'm building a team. So attitude has a lot to do with it. Some technical things, we do background checks. I do what's called an Acumax index, which is a psychometric survey. I go through telephone screening, a technical screening, a team-based interview, and sometimes a writing or presentation assignment. It's an extensive process that we don't try to rush. Here, you have to be a little broader in your desires. So I look for that. Yeah, you end up wearing multiple hats and sometimes you might need to help out people on the production floor or if you're an engineer or whatever it is. And and you won't want, need that desire to do that or that drive to learn something new. Right. You talked about that you tend to hire sometimes past the point when you really need the person. I've definitely been in most of the companies that I've worked for, especially the small ones, you're in that boat where you're waiting to the last possible moment to hire. Can you talk a little bit about that balance? And as an engineering manager, I can speak to you're either always underfunded and undermanned or the other way around. There's never that happy medium. Yes, you are accurate. How do you balance that where you might have too many projects going on this month and then the next month it might be the other way around? And how do you plan for, okay, now I think we're at a point where we grow and there's this department that needs another person. So on the engineering side, we have a really simple tool, Excel sheet that lists all of our projects and their current dollar balance. So if somebody gave us a you know $10,000 purchase order and we've done $2,000 of work, there's $8,000 on there, right? Simple math. And we have learned over the past 16 years that if that number is greater than four, we need to hire. If it's under three, we don't. If it's over five, you're going to burn out and lose your current team because they're overworked. Mm -hmm. So it's been a very simple tool that we've used for 16 years very effectively. Yeah. And in a way, I guess you could do that in a small scale for some of your other departments too, to see what the load is on the department and what it's projected to be, and then makes the call easier to hire somebody. Correct. Uh, that's always a difficult decision, though, because now you've got additional person on payroll and you need to keep them going. And that means you've got to bring in new business now. So there's pressure on the sales team, right? Right. But otherwise you close up. I mean, that's just part of the job. That's that was probably why we hesitated to start a new business. If you don't want to do that, that then you shouldn't be in business. I heard from a mentor a couple of companies back that either you're growing or you're dying a slow death. Absolutely. You believe that? Okay. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so as we're nearing the end of the interview, I usually always ask, do you have any tools or books that have helped you along the way that you think would help other people? It's really hard. Sometimes you look down and you feel alone as an entrepreneur or a small business owner. Um, it might be tough to get advice. Maybe friends and family aren't the best people to reach out to. What have you found helpful for you? I would definitely say friends and family aren't the people to reach out to. They're usually too invested in you personally, and they 
are most likely risk adverse. And as an entrepreneur, I'm not, I'm very risk happy or whatever. So or content. Sure. So yes, talking to family, they would totally tell you to go get a job. Lots of different resources have, I have found as I have felt very alone in this role as a Woman entrepreneur, I found Women's President Organization, WPO, which is a national organization of women's presidents. And that has been an incredible lifeline for me to sit across from a woman who is going through exactly the same thing, totally, you know, different company, different industries, et cetera, but handling all the same kinds of issues. So I would strongly recommend that for the, the women in your audience. A book that really turned my thinking around a few years ago was Dave Ramsey's Entree Leadership. We actually attended one of his webinar or seminars also. That book was really a, a key for me to step into the leadership role that I have and take responsibility for it. Instead of, and we were right at that tipping point of really growing, and I was moving from working in the business to working on the business, and that helped with that mindset. Most recently, I'm reading a book called The Science of Growth. It's a relatively new book, and it compares companies that have succeeded with companies that have failed. For instance, Facebook to Friendster, Tesla to Fisker. And it's mm -hmm. fascinating, especially from a product development side, the things that the successful companies did that allowed them to grow. I'm going to definitely have to check that book out. I find that very interesting. You see that a lot, that it's not always the first to market company that succeeds. It might be the second. Yes. Fascinating. So do you have any final last tips for anybody? Maybe they're at the point where you were eight years ago, where they're creating a new product from scratch or a new company from scratch, and they just need a little bit of guidance to get to the next step. What do you think was the, was the, a couple of thoughts to keep in mind, maybe some advice for your younger self? Hmm. I don't know if I would have gone into business had my younger self heard this, but um, I had thought it would get easier and it doesn't get easier. It gets different, but it's never easy. Business ownership. And I've, I sent I, about five years in, I read that from somebody else who's much further down the pike than us. And I thought, wow. So I've come to accept that. I've also come to realize that I can't let that rule my life because I'm the leader and mm -hmm. it's not any fun to follow a leader who's not joyful, not determined, not a visionary, not positive. And so, again, the resources that I mentioned, the books, the mentorship groups, they aren't a luxury. You have to make time for those because you have to get you will not find within your company the resources to do what you need to do for the company. When you work for another job, you can get coworkers that can help you. It would be very difficult in, in a, owning your own business to do that. You're seen differently. Sure. So invest in yourself. I mean, you don't have the time, you don't have the money, but you have to do it. <laughs> that's very good advice. And th that's interesting that you say that because I feel like a lot of people don't make the time or don't have the money because they feel like they constantly have to run the business or chase that next client or uh, create that next new product. And so in a way they kind of spin themselves down into a, into a hole because you're just working harder and harder and harder and um, maybe harder than you need to. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for that insight. So uh, talk a little bit about Raptor and New Eagle and where we can find you guys. 
we have three different websites that represent New Eagle. They're all neweagle.net is our main site. We have a web store. And then one of the value-added items that we developed early on is our product wiki. And we offer that free, and it is probably utilized by our suppliers, our customers, and our competitors more than any more than the value back we're getting. But again, it's an extensive technical repository about our products, about our products we supply, our vendors, and it really represents what I've talked about today in providing something for your customers, being seen as an expert and getting the customers built on that kind of a value. Yeah, it's funny that you say that even your competitors might end up using it. So you're not afraid of just putting everything out there and saying, hey, listen, this is everything that we've got and whoever wants it. There are, I won't say everything. There are a handful of things you need to request. But 75% of what we do is on the wiki. That's awesome. That's very transparent. And hopefully that carries over to any new business that you get people will take away that, hey, this is a company that I want to do businesses with because they're so upfront. Correct. That's the idea. Well, Mickey, thanks again for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you on. I look forward to seeing how New Eagle progresses, and I hope that you guys are going to get into some new challenging markets as uh, technologies come into play. And so, you know, some of the new drone technology, I imagine you guys have started working on some of that stuff. Yeah, we're doing some UAV work. Absolutely. That's exciting. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. I appreciate the time and thank you very much. And that's all I've got for today. Thanks for listening. I put all the links that we've covered under the show notes posted on theproductstartup.com slash episode 14. Please join me next time as I talk to Dean Salakas of The Party People. 30 years ago, his mom was Patches the Clown and she opened a party store in Australia. Dean and his brother took over the family business and now they're the online market leader in Australia and growing their brick and mortar network. They've also appeared on Australia's Shark Tank, and they've worked with brands like 3M and Avery to introduce new products to the market. So tune in in two weeks to hear that episode. Have you brought your product to market? Do you know someone that has? I'd love to hear from you. Let me know by dropping me a note. Go to theproductstartup.com and click on Ask Philip. I'd love to have you on the show. If you like this episode or found it valuable and you wanted to see others like it, please let me know. Leave a review on iTunes by going to theproductstartup.com slash review. I truly appreciate your support and I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast with your host, Philip Valitza. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit theproductstartup.com. Your guide to getting there. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.